There is a fifth dimension, beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space, and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. It lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Dimensions, a Twilight Zone podcast. Throughout this podcast, I will be going chronologically by air date through each 156 episodes of the original Twilight Zone series. I thought about doing them by production date, but I figured for anyone who might listen to this, it would be easier to follow along if you went by air date, as that is how they are presented on any streaming service. My purpose for doing this podcast is because I am a huge fan of the Twilight Zone. And I want to impart my knowledge that I have gained so that people that may have never watched it before, after listening, may decide to watch it or during the run of this podcast might decide to follow along. And that is my hope. Now, to be warned, there will be spoilers for each episode. So if you haven't seen it, cut this podcast off, go watch the episode, and then come back and finish the podcast. And then... If you want, send me an email to dimensionstzpodcast at gmail.com and let me know your thoughts and your opinions about the episode. I would love to share them on the podcast. And as my hope that this is a very listener-active and interactive sort of podcast. Also, judging by the episode, you'll know what the next week's episode will be, and so you can... Likewise, email me about your thoughts about that episode before the podcast episode on that episode comes out. And I will read your thoughts on the air, and we can get a richer sense of what everyone feels and what everyone's opinion is on each episode. So, without further ado, here is episode one of Dimensions, a Twilight Zone podcast. Since this is the first episode... We will be starting with the first episode of the series, which is titled, Where Is Everybody? With opening narration by Will Lastly. The place is here, the time is now, and the journey into the shadows we're about to watch could be our journey. It first aired on October 2nd, 1959. It was written by Rod Serling, directed by Robert Stevens, who also directed an upcoming episode that we will discuss called Walking Distance. And if you're any fan of the show, uh, Walking Distance is usually in most people's top five best episodes ever created. The music was composed by Bernard Herrmann, who you'll hear a lot more about as the podcast goes on through the series. He was quite uh, well instrumental in the series as far as the music is concerned. The producer is credited as Buck Houghton, although a man named William Self was actually the producer of the pilot episode. He would have been the guy that would have went and shopped it around to all the studios to see which, you know, which studio would pick it up. So he's not really credited with being a producer on this episode, even though he was. And then 
when Buck Houghton took over. William Self uh, basically just disappeared. In the cast is Earl Holloman, who plays Mike Ferris, and James Gregory, who plays the Air Force General, who is Ferris's commanding officer, basically. You'll see James Gregory again in the episode The Passersby, where he plays a Confederate sergeant walking home on a road after the Civil War has ended. Now, Rod Serling wound up being the narrator throughout the series, but he wasn't his own first choice to be the narrator of his own television show. He originally had a man named Westbrook Van Voorhees, but he wasn't well-liked. His voice, uh, most people associated with the show, didn't seem that his voice fit the part of the narrator of this anthology series. So Serling had to kind of go back to the drawing board. Orson Welles was considered to be a narrator at one time, but his fee would have been too expensive, and it seems that uh, Rod Serling didn't really care for Mr. Welles, so that idea was scrapped. Serling originally wanted a man named Richard Egan, who was a film actor, who had a really deep, sort of soothing voice to be the narrator. However, due to various studio contracts, uh, Mr. Egan was not available to be the narrator of The Twilight Zone. So Rod took the old adage of, if you want something done right, do it yourself. And he did it himself, even though uh, it is reported that he was very camera shy and very unsure of himself in front of the camera as well as he had this manner of speaking where he basically talked through his teeth and the higher-ups weren't sure if it was going to play, but it actually wound up uh, working well. And in fact, his manner of speaking is one of the reasons why he was so regarded as the narrator of The Twilight Zone. Now, I think, and this is just my personal opinion, but it's my podcast, so I think I'm allowed a little... A little latitude on this. Um, the Twilight Zone actually came about at the perfect time. You've got to remember in 1959, we were still 10 years away from man going to the moon. And this show positioned itself perfectly in between the old horror films and sci-fi films of the 40s and the 50s. You know, people like Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney doing the creature features to other sci-fi works like The Forbidden Planet. And it was also before all the Hammer horror films and Grindhouse pictures of the late 60s and the 70s. And in a lot of ways, it kind of mashed the two together, the sci-fi and the horror and, and scary story sort of, you know, genres together into one fantastic anthology series because television at this point was still a somewhat relatively new thing you see people used to listen to the sci-fi radio programs of things like dimension x and x minus one as well as as well as mysteries and dramatic series like suspense then came along tv and you had things like the alfred hitchcock hour one step beyond and the outer limits to fill this sort of new medium with the same sort of programming that people were used to on the radio. 
And I think, at least in my personal opinion, that the Twilight Zone kind of melded all of these genres into one. Now, the interesting thing about the Twilight Zone is Rod Serling had put it together because he wanted to do a dramatic sort of series where he discussed the societal issues of the day through narrative and storytelling. But no one would greenlight a series where it was just him making teleplays about current social situations of the day. Now, you got to remember, this was also in the late 50s when the civil rights movement was starting to really gain momentum. But, you know, we were still kind of fresh off of World War II and the Korean War was, you know, just ended and Vietnam hadn't quite begun yet. And so there was a lot going on socially and Rod Serling wanted to comment on this. And so he did the only thing he knew to do. He created a television series using sci-fi and suspense and ghouls and goblins and horror as a sort of backdrop, as sort of a, you know, fleece to tell the stories he wanted to tell about the social situations of the day and the social problems that were prevalent in society at the time. And we will discuss this on the podcast, and if you watch the programs with that sort of information in mind, you can kind of see and you can pick out in each episode sort of what maybe Rod was trying to say, especially in the episodes that he wrote, and he wrote the bulk of the series. 156 episodes were produced, and he wrote 92 of them. So that kind of gives you an idea of, you know, how much influence and how much control he actually had over what was being produced, at least in the early stages of the program, and we'll go into more detail about that as the series goes on. Now, some might call it the quintessential sci-fi show, and while I don't necessarily disagree with them, I believe it it transcended more than just sci-fi, and it was actually a lot of different genres kind of rolled into one under the guise of a sci-fi sort of blanket, but you understand he had to do that in order to get the series made. Now, the original pilot that was pitched was written by Rod Serling, and it was titled The Happy Place. And it was about a society where uh, once you turn 60, you are deemed no longer useful, and society sort of euthanizes you. So basically, when you get old, you go away because you no longer serve a purpose to society. And that idea was considered too controversial and too too heavy-handed for a sci-fi show. And they wanted something a little different. And so Rod came up with this story for the pilot called Where Is Everybody? So let's get into it. So it starts out with Earl Holloman playing Mike Ferris walking down a road toward a cafe. And... He hears music playing from the cafe, so he goes inside, and there's no one in the cafe. There's no cook, there's no patrons, there's nobody working there, no dishwasher, no nobody. And you start to get the sense that he feels sort of like a fish out of water. And he starts to pour himself a cup of coffee, and he knocks a little alarm clock off a shelf... And it breaks, and you see the time is being 6.15. And we can assume it's the a.m. because it's sunny outside. 
Now, throughout this, he is basically monologuing all the information that we didn't get from if he had a conversation with someone. So it's a lot of internal monologuing that is driving the plot forward, so to speak. And at one point, he reaches into his pocket and he says, I've got $2.85 American. So he leaves the diner and he goes to town. And this is where it really starts to pick up steam, is that the town is completely deserted. There's not a soul to be seen in sight, which is weird on, you know, just a a normal morning of a normal day. Now, the funny thing about the town is this is the only episode of The Twilight Zone that was shot at Universal Studios. And the town that is used for this episode is the same town that was used in the movie Bye Bye Birdie, But it is also the town where Marty McFly and Doc Brown go back to the future. Yes, it is that exact same town from Back to the Future. Just the clock tower isn't the clock tower yet. And, you know, The Power of Love isn't playing by Huey Lewis. So Mike has this uneasy feeling. And now it's getting even worse because, you know, this town is deserted. Not a soul in sight. And... No no one walking around, nothing going on whatsoever. He's in basically complete and utter isolation. So at this point, we get a bit of a red herring because he looks across the way and he sees a woman sitting in a uh, in a panel van like she's waiting on someone. So he calls out and he runs over to her and it turns out to be a mannequin. And, I mean, Earl Holloman's a good actor. You can kind of see just, you know... His his face goes from happiness to see another person to kind of shock that it's not an actual person to sort of disbelief that it's not an actual person. And then sort of to sadness and sort of the state of things. And this very dour sort of sort of mood just hits him. And you can see it in his face. And he's, I mean, he's a good actor. But Serling kind of throws in that little bit of a red herring with us with the mannequin because you think oh well there's a person but it's not a person and it's actually just a mannequin who's sitting in a truck outside of a of a mannequin sort of warehouse which is interesting because it's it's kind of a little bit of foreshadowing to me anyway at least i like to think of it this way it's a little bit of foreshadowing for an upcoming episode called the after hours which revolves around store mannequins so at this point in the show you're kind of almost in, in a way, kind of there with Mike Ferris in his in his loneliness. And then the silence is broken by a phone ringing. And he sees a phone booth and he runs to it. And he runs in and he closes the door and he picks up the receiver. And all it says is, this is the special operator. And it's just a mechanical voice that just says, this is the special operator. And so he tries to make a call. The call doesn't work. All he gets is the special operator. And you can tell he's he's really starting to, to panic. And this sets up to me uh, one of the one of the best things about this episode is then you see him trying to get out of the phone booth and he's pushing on the door and he's pushing on the door and he's hitting it and he's hitting it and he's shoving it and it's not opening. And then all of a sudden he realizes, oh, it it, it, it opens in and not out. And so he opens the door in and gets out of the phone booth. Now, the funny thing about this is, is Rod Serling wrote this in to the script as sort of a, 
a life imitating art sort of thing a biographical piece about himself if you will because Rod had actually gone into a phone booth one time to make a phone call and realized that he was running late for an appointment or a flight or something and so he started shoving on the door and pushing the door and pushing the door and it wasn't opening and someone who was outside the phone booth actually pushed the door in and sort of rescued Rod from his own panic of being stuck in a phone booth and he realized that that was you know just a silly thing that people go through and he wrote it into the script and I always thought that was a nice little sort of bit of trivia to know so as we continue with Mike he walks around the town he looks at different shops he looks in in you know around the town still no one he goes to the police station and he actually uses the radio and tries to raise anyone and he can't get anyone on there either but yet there is a cigar smoking in in the ashtray almost as if someone was there and saw him coming in and ducked out and he goes in the back to where the where the cells are and he goes into a cell and there's actually water running in the sink and you can see on um, the shadow on the wall kind of behind him the cell door starts to swing closed and at the last minute he sees it and kind of rushes out of there and I always thought that was uh, maybe a little ham-fistedly metaphorical as to you know sort of him losing his mind being being trapped in a place so to speak and I don't know I always thought that was that was pretty interesting sort of a you know a way to do it where you kind of get a little bit of foreshadowing that you know Things aren't what they seem, but there's a reason for it, you know. So he goes to a drugstore, and he's looking through it, and there's these book racks, and on the book racks are copies and copies of the book The Last Man on Earth, which was actually the basis for um, I Am Legend, which, you know, the Will Smith movie was, of course, based on. That was the source material. Uh, as well as the 1950s movie, The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price, which, if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's actually a really, really good movie um, about zombies. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the book, I Am Legend, which was also The Last Man on Earth, it had different titles, uh, was written by Richard Matheson, who wrote uh, a lot of of Twilight Zone episodes. I mean, a lot of them. Not as many as Rod, obviously, since Serling wrote the bulk of the series. But Matheson did write a lot of, of the episodes as well. So we get into the third act, so to speak, of the episode. You see Mike outside, and he's playing tic-tac-toe with himself, and it's now dark out. And so he's been in this town by himself with no other human interaction for the entire day. Not a single person in this town in the entire day. And all of a sudden he sees lights and hears, hears sound from the movie theater across the way. And so he runs in and he sees a poster about the Air Force. And he notices that the person on the poster is wearing the same outfit he has on. So he's figured out, well, I'm in the Air Force. And so he runs in screaming that, hopefully, you know, hoping someone would be in there to listen to him. And, of course, he finds no one. No one's in the theater, but all of a sudden a movie starts playing. 
and he runs up to the projection booth to try to see if anyone's in there hollering and screaming, and of course no one's in there. He's still alone this entire time. And so finally, this entire day, he's been by himself in this strange town with no one around, and he cracks, and he runs down the stairs of the theater and right into a mirror wall. And, of course, the mirror shatters. Now, interesting bit of trivia about this. The way they shot this was they set up a camera for him to run toward the camera as he was running down the stairs. And then he sort of ran into the mirror and kind of bounced off of it. And then they shot from another angle from the vantage point of the mirror and had a a crew member behind the wall with the mirror with a sledgehammer and he smashed into the wall with the sledgehammer which of course broke the mirror and shattered it everywhere and i always thought this was a a really cool scene so he's had enough and he runs out the movie theater just in a total panic flop sweat the whole thing and runs over to a traffic signal and starts pushing the button and and screaming you know will somebody help me help me please somebody help me help me please somebody and just over and over and over again and then we see that he is actually in a sort of flight simulator in a hangar and you see the the higher-ups including james gregory uh watching it all on monitors and He's, you know, hooked up to electrodes on his body. They're monitoring everything about him. His vitals is everything. And you see him pushing this button in the in the simulator. And he's, he's talking into it. And so James Gregory calls, you know, calls to everyone. Says, you know, okay, get him out of there. Get him out of there. And so they pull him out of there. And come to find out he was in this simulator to try to simulate what being alone during a space trip to the moon doing several orbits and coming back down to earth you know by yourself in 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 an aircraft it's revealed that he was in this little isolation booth this little simulator for 484 hours which is uh, roughly 20 days by himself and so basically he he was stressed to the point that his his nervous system basically just cracked on him so as they're carrying him away on a stretcher he stops to talk to james gregory and he says something to the effect of next time this won't just be me in a box in a hangar will it james gregory says no it's going to be the real thing next time and uh at this point rod serling wanted to throw in a bit of a of a twilight zone twist so to speak uh in this episode where uh he wanted to film a scene to where when Mike went to the movie theater, he grabbed a ticket for the movie, tore it in half, and shoved the stub in his pocket. And then when he was being carried off on the stretcher, he would reach into his pocket and pull out the movie ticket and see that, you know, things aren't maybe what they seem. And even and even Earl Holloman had the idea that he said, when I'm in the phone booth, why don't I rip a page out of the phone book and put it in my pocket? you know, and then pull it out as I'm being carried off on the stretcher. But the higher-ups at CBS uh, weren't interested in in having anything like that, you know, to be done on the show. You know, they they wanted it strictly, you know, non-supernatural for this one. 
Now remember, this was 1959. Space travel, at least to the moon and back, was 10 years off in the United States. And so 484 hours, you know, this guy was in this booth, which was supposed to simulate a trip to the moon, several orbits around the moon, and then back down to Earth. And when they actually did tests for it, uh, NASA figured out that to go to the moon, do like 10 orbits around the moon, and then come back would be less than 150 hours, so less than a third of the time that that he was in this chamber. Now, interesting of note, um, this was one of the only episodes of The Twilight Zone that didn't really have a supernatural uh, twist or, you know, plot to it. It was it was more of a straightforward man gains PTSD while being locked in a box for 484 hours. Interesting uh, little bit of trivia also. Uh, Tony Curtis, song and dance man and actor, uh, to star later in the Odd Couple TV series with Jack Klugman, was originally offered the role uh, that Earl Holloman got, but Tony Curtis was too expensive to be afforded, so the role went to Holloman. Now, there were a few goofs in the episode. Um, the first one, or one of the first ones, I should say, uh, comes around the time when he's looking in the store windows and he looks in, in this bakery, and in the front window of the bakery, you can see some crews, crew members' heads visible, you know, in the window reflection. Um, another one is when he's in the jail cells of the police station and the door starts closed and he runs through it and and starts to rush out of the, the jail cells. He grabs one of the bars and, like, the entire set kind of shakes. So you could tell it was, you know, a set not actually, you know, put together well because the whole thing kind of wobbled. And in the phone booth scene, there's a uh, man with black glasses that's kind of visible in the reflection of the panels of the phone booth. Now, moving on to the cast, Earl Holloman was born in 1928, and as a matter of fact, he's still alive. Um, he has 98 credits to his name on IMDb, the last one being right around the year 2000 when he retired. But he was in several movies, uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral, The Sons of Katie Elder with John Wayne, as well as the sci-fi movie Forbidden Planet, which... The Twilight Zone series actually has a lot of ties with in reference to props, but we will discover more about that as this podcast progresses. But when he wasn't in movies, he was in several TV shows, ranging from Gunsmoke to Policewoman to Murder, She Wrote, In the Heat of the Night, and he basically worked steady for his entire career, taking bit parts in television and even doing movies up until the year 2000 when he retired. Now, James Gregory, as I said, was in a later episode of The Twilight Zone called The Passersby, but some people might remember him as playing Inspector Frank Luger on the Barney Miller sitcom in the 70s. But we will discuss him in depth in the episode The Passersby. So as far as morality in this uh, episode, or philosophy, um, it's not a lot of supernatural elements, and 
really, I th- I think, and once again, this is my personal opinion. Take it or leave it. Tell me yours. Email me and tell me yours. Um, but I personally think this was Rod Serling's sort of love letter to PTSD because he developed PTSD when he was in World War II, which uh, actually started his writing career when he got out of the service. He was he was pretty uh, pretty messed up, you know, having a lot of nightmares, having a lot of a lot of mental you know problems in dealing with coming back from war and writing things and putting things on paper was really the only way he could sort of cope with uh the feelings that he was having so the the moral or the philosophy to me is that PTSD is a serious issue that needs to be addressed more than it actually is and at least it should have been addressed more than it actually was back then because back then it wasn't it wasn't even PTSD it was you know shell shock but no one seemed to care they just had this attitude of suck it up and move on with your life and not realizing that the mental damage done by PTSD had far greater reaching capabilities than just being you know a little issue that you develop you know during a major war in combat and you got to remember, this was the pilot episode, so it couldn't really be too far out there because Rod Serling was still trying to, you know, trying to sell this thing, so he had to put lipstick on the pig, so to speak, you know. Now, for my likes and dislikes about this episode, um, this is one of my favorites. Um, it's probably not top five, but it's definitely one of my favorites for the fact that Earl Holloman, I think, really, really sold it. Um, a lot of actors, I don't know if they could necessarily sell it, but I think Earl Holloman did a wonderful job in this role. And a little bit of trivia also, uh, Rod Serling said in a uh, question and answer session in 1974 that during the filming of this episode, Earl Holloman actually had a fever of over 100 degrees while he was shooting the episode. So, um, when you watch it, think about that. This guy running around, acting like a fool and screaming and sweating, uh, essentially has the flu, and he feels like complete garbage. And he's running around screaming and hollering and all doing this while having over a 100-degree temperature. Now, as far as my dislikes of this episode, you know, to me, it was Twilight Zone, but it didn't have that little extra twist that you needed. Maybe that could have been, you know my love of of that sort of thing could have been sated by perhaps the the movie ticket in his pocket or the the phone book page being being taken out of his pocket as he was being hauled away but it just it, it wasn't there for me if i had any criticism of this episode it would be that and it would also be that everything in the episode is is done through monologue and i it pretty much has to be but surely there could have been another way for uh, serling to kind of get this point across you know without having you know an episode of a guy running around a town talking to himself but then i think once again that's maybe part of the whole ptsd thing with the fact that you know you kind of have no one to talk to and so you have to talk to yourself and in that case, you just want to hear a voice, even if it is your own. And so when you think about it that way, 
I uh, I really think that this episode was a home run and one one heck of a way to start the series. Now, who would I cast if I were to cast this episode to be made or remade, I might say, today? Who would I cast? And I thought about this, and honestly, you know, one person that comes to mind is Matt Damon, only because, you know, he's a in-shape, blonde-haired guy that kind of reminds you of Earl Holloman in a way. Um, but I think, perhaps, and I know I'm going out on a limb here, and I think he could do it, I would almost like to see Dave Chappelle tackle it, you know, or... And once again, going out on a limb, uh, Rob McElhaney or McClenny, however you say it, from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I think he has a lot of potential that's not wasted on the show that he's on, but it, it definitely doesn't really stretch his acting muscles. And I think he's got it in him. And I think he could play that part. And I don't know, maybe I'm weird, maybe I'm crazy, but I just, I think he can do it. From the little things I've seen him in when he wasn't on It's Always Sunny, he really has a likability and a and a a sort of uh easiness on camera that I think Earl Holloman definitely had on this episode and in the movies he was in. And for the general for a bit part, you know, why not Bill Murray in a bit more of a of a serious role, even a TV role? I think that would be something to see because if you're gonna have a small part, at least fill it with a big actor. You know what I mean? And Bill Murray is one of those larger-than-life kind of people. So I think that that's the way I would cast it if I had to cast it today. So that brings us to essentially the end of this episode. And now here's Will Lastly with the closing narration. Up there. Up there is the vastness of space in the void that is sky. Up there is an enemy known as Isolation. It sits there in the stars, waiting with the patience of eons, forever waiting in the Twilight Zone. Next week's episode is called One for the Angels, and it's about a kindly old man who makes a deal with death. So watch it. Send me, send me your thoughts on it, if you want to, before the, the episode airs. Um... You can email me at dimensionstzpodcast at gmail.com and I will be sure to read them on the podcast. And I also welcome any, uh, any feedback, any criticism you have. Bear in mind, I'm brand new at this and it's a learning experience for me as it is a listening experience for you. So we're in this together. So help me help you help me. So, special shout out to Will Lastly for the opening and closing narrations in his best Serling voice. I appreciate that, Will. And uh, join us next time for One for the Angels. Goodbye, everybody.